Uh, Lord, here with my family this morning, uh, I feel compelled to confess that some of this stuff as the building project just kind of looms large in our hearts and drags on, it feels sometimes. Uh, it can be discouraging for us as leaders, discouraging for us as a church to face these insurmountable, it seems, obstacles. And yet, Father, even as I confess that to you, there's the comfort of your, of your Holy Spirit in my heart and in the hearts of your people. You are forming a family here in this church. This isn't a business. This isn't some entertainment that we give to crowds. This is a family, and through the building project, Lord, you specifically are using the way that you have brought it about to bind us together as brothers and sisters, to cause us to unite, to set up a beachhead for the gospel here in our city, a place where we can love families and do marriage counseling and training, do child raising trainings, Lord, where we can have students come in and be trained up to go out and church plant teams and so much vision, so much mission can be accomplished when we have our own space. But until then, Lord, I know that you are binding us together in prayer. I know that you are binding us together in fullness of faith. I know you're binding us together in generosity. And so we entrust our building project to you and and we trust the timelines to you, Lord. We've set these aggressive goals, but we leave that in your hands as well. Lord, even this morning as we look at this passage, I pray with earnestness that you, Holy Spirit, would continue to mature this community, that every person listening to this sermon would be introspective and ask questions about themselves. Am I growing in God? Am I maturing as a Christian? Am I maturing as a member of the body of Jesus Christ? I pray, Father, for equality in this room, that each of us would value each other infinitely because you value us infinitely. I pray that every person in this room would know that the assignment you have given to them no matter how small it may seem in the eyes of the world or in the eyes of others, is of infinite value. Every act of service, every penny given, every prayer lifted up is of infinite value and of utmost importance to the success of this body in this community and the glory of Jesus. And Father, I pray most earnestly this morning that from this message, in this church, as our members and prospective family members and seekers and curious onlookers listen to this, I pray that they would feel the weight of their responsibility in taking up their place in this body, giving and praying and serving. And Father, that you would motivate us because Jesus, you gave the ultimate sacrifice for us. Jesus, you served perfectly for us. Jesus, you were burned up on the cross in our place and now you're alive. And so let not a single word be wasted. Let not a single idea drop to the ground fruitless, but let there be seeds planted. Let this be a blooming tree of life, taproot church, this growing in grace, growing in God, maturing community, seeking to saturate Burien and the South End with the grace of Jesus Christ 
through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. So it was probably a Mother's Day like two or three years ago, or maybe actually had to have been, man, like seven or eight years ago now that I think about it. And for those of you that have been part of this church for the last almost decade now, you'll know this, and I've said this many times. When we first came, the children's ministry was basically Sophia, who was about this tall, and Nyla, who was about this tall, and Joby, who was still just a little kind of bundle that you could hold right here. And, uh, and it was a Mother's Day, and I remember just praying in earnest, God, give us piles and piles of babies. And here we are, almost a decade later, frantically panicked because of our children's ministry and the overflow situation that we have and the constant need that we have for discipleship in there. And here's what I love about the baby thing. I love how people, when the baby is brought into the community, will dote on that baby and look into that baby's eyes. And there's this sort of unwritten code of conduct about babies. There's this action that we all must take and this communication that we all must speak. We look at the baby and we say, oh, he's got your eyes. Oh, look at that hair. She's got your hair. And in the back of our mind, we're thinking, thank God she doesn't have his nose. And there's this, there's this thing where we're looking at this little tiny human being and we're saying to ourselves, who is that little being? Who is that little human? And indwelling that communication and that action is the earnest hope and the present joy and the fullness of that little human being becoming fully them. Human growth and maturing is a process from birth to toddlers to elementary school on into middle school where the Weirdness really takes on a, a, a hyper thing of hormones and growth and awkwardness to high school where things begin to pan out and in your 20s to your mid-20s you really begin to kind of boil down who you are. Then you hit adulthood and you're now beginning to have your family and raise your family and then all of a sudden before you know it you're an empty nester asking where did the time go and then you have gray hair, and then you have a grave that's closer than you could have ever expected. But you, by the point you reach that grave, should God grant you gray hair in 70 or 80 years, are more fully you than on that first day. And nobody's coming to you as a grandpa saying, oh, you've got your father's eyes. Oh, you've got your mother's hair. Oh, thank God you don't have your father's nose. No, you are now you, and you have multiplied if you've grown and if you've matured. The Christian life is exactly the same thing. Upon your new birth, the Holy Spirit indwells you, and God and angels beyond look upon you and say, oh, you've got your Father's eyes. Oh, you've got Jesus' heart. Oh, you've got his ears to hear with. And you begin a process, a lifelong process, of moving from baby Christianity where you cry and you need your mom a whole lot to toddlership where you're learning to walk to elementary school, your one plus ones and your two plus twos to junior high where you get really awkward and you think you know everything and you don't know anything to high school where you're finally beginning to get corrected to college, now you're taking on responsibility to multiplication as you possibly start 
start your families, you're multiplying disciples to gray hair, wisdom, sage beards. And then a grave, which actually leads to fullness of humanity and Christianity, which is fullness of life. There would be something wrong if a baby was born and 10 years later, a boy was still acting like a baby. It would be strange to talk to a teenager who still stumbled and bumbled over his words as if he was two years old. Growth is normal. Maturity is normal. Non-growth and immaturity in physical realm is called deformity. There's something wrong. And so too in the Christian life, immaturity and lack of growth and stagnation there's something wrong there. And so what Paul is doing here in the book of 1 Corinthians is he's coming to a church that really were teenagers, but they were still acting like toddlers. They had the spirit. They had been born again. They had been coached and trained and, and taught the gospel, the basics, the core values. They had all of it in place, and yet they still lived in this entrenched toddlerdom. They hadn't moved into maturity. They hadn't begun to exercise their responsibility. And so the whole book of 1 Corinthians is Paul saying, hey, you've got your father's eyes. Hey, you've got Jesus' ears and heart. Why are you acting like you're two years old? You need to act your age. You need to live in accord with where God is taking you and how God is growing you. And so what we're going to look at this morning is as Paul makes these corrections, as he comes to his people and makes these admonitions, we can become introspective. That was my prayer for us through this sermon, that we would step back in the middle of this sermon and ask the Holy Spirit to investigate our hearts. Now, if you've been a Christian for more than a year or two, welcome to toddlerhood. You have to take responsibility. You have to learn how to walk. And so step back here and pray, Holy Spirit, would you speak to my heart I want to grow. I want to learn. Am I stagnant right now? Am I stultified, which is a really great word that means stopped in my growth? Am I not maturing right now? Holy Spirit, would you come and speak to me and show me the marks of where I am maturing that I might rejoice in your grace, that I might have hope for who I'm becoming because as we say at Taproot Church, as a Christian, the whole point of Christianity is you're becoming like Jesus. Who was Jesus? The perfect human being, which means you're not just going to lose your personality and be Jesus incarnate. You are becoming fully you, a fully perfect human being as God matures you in the spirit. And so three things here as Paul corrects and chastises and rebukes and exhorts and admonishes this little community in the city of Corinth that will draw from in becoming introspective and discerning, am I growing, am I maturing? First of all, when Paul came to them, the very first thing that he did to begin to correct this was he explains to them their immaturity. I love Paul. Man, he is just so patient. If I was writing to the Corinthian church, what hair I have left, I would have pulled out and been screaming, raving mad. These folks are getting drunk at communion. A dude is sexually involved with his mother, the text says. Most scholars can't swallow that pill, and so they're like, it's his mother-in-law, probably. Incestual, 
to say the least. And they're rejoicing that the grace of God is upon them in this amazing relationship that's involved in their church. If I was Paul, I would have been a little bit perturbed. I think that if I would have come to the Corinthian church, there would have been no patience. It would have been, punishment is coming for you, you sinners. But Paul, wise Paul, pastor Paul, parent Paul, he comes to this church, and he comes patiently, but I believe he comes firmly, and he begins to explain to them, you are teenagers who are acting like toddlers. Now remember, the primary mark of immaturity is that you don't know you're immature. I have yet to see a two-year-old respond to his parents, why are you acting that way? Why are you being so immature? Father, you're right. Forgive me. I'll be mature from here on out. No. Two-year-olds and elementary students, and junior high students, and to some degree, sometimes some later stage teenagers have a level of immaturity, and the mark of that immaturity is that they don't know. They think they are immature. The mark of maturity is that somebody can come to you and say, you're being immature, and you respond with, you know what, I want to learn. A mark of maturity is being able to hear that you have stages of growth yet to go through, and you're not prideful about it. You don't buck against that and push against that. You simply say, I'm going to receive this counsel. Proverbs is filled with these quips and quotes. As Solomon said, a wise man will take counsel. A wise man heeds advice. A wise man will take his bruisings because he knows it benefits him in his growth. And so Paul here comes and he begins to explain this issue of immaturity to the Corinthian community and he does it by a series of contrasts here in verses 1 through right around probably verse 9. He contrasts what an immature individual looks like and what a maturing Christian looks like in the context of community. The first thing that he compares and contrasts, he uses this language of spiritual persons and fleshy people. This idea of those who are animated and moved by the Holy Spirit, their values, their desires, their dreams, the inclinations of their heart are directed by the Holy Spirit and by the Scriptures. That is a maturing Christian, and he contrasts that with what he calls fleshy Christians, or I love what he says, merely human are you not being merely human, Paul says there, if you're jealous and striving and constantly bickering and fighting and dividing? And so Paul says the maturing Christian is aware of the internal values, is increasing in his dependence on the scriptures as the sole arbiter of truth, is defined by the Holy Spirit guiding, correcting, convicting, and empowering in contrast to the immature Christian who remains steadfastly dependent upon the values of the world, upon the inclinations of sinful desires, who continues to dream of what only he or she can get for himself versus how the Holy Spirit may be inclining them to serve others. A second contrast here that Paul puts in place is he explains the immaturity to the community is he talks about needing to come to the Corinthian church and only give them milk because they weren't ready yet for meat. Scholars debate 
the difference between milk and meat when it comes to theological teaching. And I don't think that it's really necessary. I think they're missing the mark. I don't think that the gospel, Jesus died for you, he loves you, he's alive. I don't think that's the milk. And the meat is, do you hold to some sort of, you know, super lapsarian idea of the book of Genesis when it refers to cosmology? That's not meat. That's a bunch of big words that scholars use to make themselves sound smart. Milk and meat, I believe, biblically is defined this way. All of the milk and the meat of God's word is wrapped up in the gospel. But what exactly is milk? I don't mean to gross any of you out, but milk is simply pre-chewed, pre-digested meat. Given to a baby because a baby doesn't have teeth to chew it and the enzymes to metabolize it. And so Paul says, when I first came to you, I had to chew up the food for you. I had to do the praying for you. I had to prepare the meat for you. I had to chew on it. I had to pray over it. I had to deliver it in such a way that it was palatable and easily understood. But meat, the meat of the word, how do we define the meat of the word? Because if a spiritually immature Christian is one who is ever dependent on milk, what would a maturing Christian look like eating meat? And I can tell you this, and you may have made this statement, I just want to call you to repentance tenderly and patiently and firmly. If you have ever said, man, I just want the meat of the word. The pastor's not giving me the meat of the word. If you ever email me, Danny, I think you're giving too shallow of a sermon. You need to, you need to start getting into the meat of the word. Uh, I'm going to delete you from my email box. <laughs> I'm going to call you on the phone. I'm going to have a little word with you, prayerfully like Paul would. But here's the deal. When you say that, what you're saying is, I want you, Danny, to chew the meat for me. You're saying, give me more milk. Just give me more milk. Meat, for a maturing Christian, is one who is learning to feed themselves. I think I yelled at you guys a couple weeks ago. At least I felt like I was yelling at you in my heart to read your Bibles. That's where the meat is. That's where the meat is. Those of you that are in gospel leadership, you know what you're doing there? You're not getting the meat of the word because we're introducing you to theological vision and, and, and broader scopes of theological thinking. You're getting meat there because there you are being trained to chew. There, gospel leadership in that residency program is difficult. Just like a baby that's teething, there's a lot of crying with gospel residency students in this church. So much reading, so much time, so much writing. It's a fork in your hand, and it's chewing on the meat. It's learning to digest it. It's learning to take it in. Milk and meat is defined not by the words and the scope and the depth of the teaching. Milk and meat is defined by, is somebody doing it for you, or are you now in the word, growing, learning theology, and real meat comes when you've got a baby that you've chewed the meat for, and you're now giving them the milk. That's the life that God is giving to you. That's the way that God is maturing you. You. No, Danny, he's maturing you, and you're the teacher, and you bring the milk, you bring the meat. No, 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 no. A maturing Christian says, I am the one that chews this meat because I have influence in the lives around me to give to them milk that brings them to Jesus. And then finally, Paul contrasts immature Christians with maturing Christians what he calls spiritual persons, what I like to call fully human persons, with fleshy persons or fleshy humans or immature humans, he contrasts them by saying, look, 
the mark of immaturity in you guys is there's jealousy and there's strife in the midst of you. Verse 3, for you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way, Paul says? But the mark of a man or a woman in Christ who is maturing is there's an increasing, what I just call contentment and rest. When I was growing up, about every five years, we would have a massive extended family reunion down in the Ozark Mountains of Arkansas. My mom's side is from the deep south. Think overalls with no shirt, corncob pipes, big beards, hillbillies. That's my mom's side of the family. It's probably part of the reason I'm so messed up. We would go down there, and there would li- it felt like there was 1,000 people there. There was probably 150 people at these big southern family reunions, and you could see the contrast between the immature family members and the mature family members. Why? The immature family members were usually 10 years old and younger, and there was thousands of them, all the cousins, and they were all fighting with each other. It always broke out in a fight. As we got older, we started playing poker together, and I remember almost getting in fistfights with my cousins from Iowa because they were card sharks, man. <laughs> always had an ace under the table. But there was constant fighting in the immature community there. There was constant striving. There was constant jealousy. Why does he have more ice cream than me? How come he got to go longer on the ski boat than I did? Constant. And then there was Pop and Granny. And they were the matriarch and the patriarch of this family. They were old and they were mature. And I just loved it. You knew Pop was in his place when he looked at all of his thousands of grandkids and great-grandkids, took his, his uh, hearing aids, turned them down, grabbed his iced tea, crossed his legs, kicked back in the chair, and literally within 10 minutes, he was the epitome of contentment and rest, completely asleep as chaos just swarmed around him. At Taproot, we like to say that God is making us what? A non-anxious presence in the midst of a panicked culture. As we mature as a community, in some ways, it's very appropriate for us to turn down the cultural hearing aids in our ears, kick back, cross our legs, sip on our spiritual iced tea, and be a non-anxious, content, rest-filled, non-striving, it's-gonna-be-okay people. Marks of immaturity in your own personal heart this day may be that driven envy and jealousy of which I am plagued by, Striving and manipulation, worry and anxiety, these are all the places of toddlers and young teens in Christianity. But as we grow in the gospel of grace and we believe what we believe and we chew the meat of theology and it actually gets down into our guts and becomes part of us, we're able to kick back and say, I'm going to turn down the cultural hearing aids, the flesh hearing aids, I'm going to be content, I'm going to rest. That is a mark of a maturing community and a maturing individual. Number two. Paul went on and he exemplified equality for this community. They were divided based on power structures like we all do. They wanted to run in the right peer groups for the students, the high school students in this room. You know exactly what I'm saying. It's so aggressive at that age where you want to be recognized by that person and be with that person. And so what Paul is saying here is a maturing community of people, they actually are marked by a sense of equality with each other. And Paul exemplified this not only in his actions, but in his internal attitudes, the way that he kind of effused, like breathed out, like 
I read Paul, and as I've been spending 20 years now trying to get in his head, every time I'm really confronted with Paul, the word I walk away from thinking upon is humility. How was Paul so humble? He was a Roman citizen. He was a PhD in theology, highly educated, brilliant strategic thinker. What made him so humble? He had encountered the risen Jesus who had knocked his value system upside down. And Paul was now living what we call in theology, for those of you that want meat on the Sunday morning sermon, a cruciform life. His life was formed by the cross. The Christ who had been crucified for him had so formed his life that now his values were to be weaker in the name of God being made stronger through him. His values were to be dishonored as his Christ, his Savior, was dishonored. He didn't need the honor of the world because he knew that ultimately he'd be honored as Christ had been honored. His life was cruciform, formed by the cross. And so as you travel here through verses 10 down through around verse 15, you see how Paul addresses this issue of total equality. Excuse me, verses 5 through uh, 9 is where he addresses this issue of equality. And let me just read it for you again. Paul says, you guys are divided. You're playing all these power games. You're, you're poking at each other in your circle of peers trying to get position. And Paul says, if you're maturing as a Christian, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? And he viewed himself merely as a servant through whom you happen to believe. And the Lord actually was the, he's the one that assigned this to me, Paul says. He says, I'm the one that planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So Paul says to the Corinthian community that from his perspective, and if we're maturing as people of God, regardless of the position that somebody holds in the body of Christ— now, for those of you that are inclined towards leadership and not yet in senior leadership of organizations or churches, you may look at my job and think, oh man, I want to rise to that. Listen, I'm just here to tell you that there are things in this job that you won't understand until you're actually doing it. Some of us who are inclined uh, to, to, to be on the more less seen side of things uh, may feel like our position is regarded as meaningless. Nobody sees me doing this. Nobody sees me changing that diaper at two in the morning. Nobody, nobody actually heard the prayer that I lifted up for my friend as I was walking down the hallway of my, of my high school. Nobody, nobody sees that I have frequented the same barista every single day for two years praying for them as much as I possibly, nobody sees that. It's meaningless, right? Paul says, he saw, and a maturing community should see, every position in this room, regardless of whether it's seen or unseen, powerful or unpowerful, influential or not influential, he said, I see you all as servants. I see myself as a fellow servant. Paul said, regardless of what duty you have been given by the Lord, whatever fulfillment you are engaged in right now, of doing what God wants you to do, Paul said, I see all of us having an assignment. 
Every single one of us has something that the creator of the universe has said, I'm giving this to you to do with your life, with your personality, with your gift set, with your wiring, regardless of the differences in personality and ethnicity and cultural background and economics and education. Paul says, regardless of any of those differences, he says, Apollos and I, who, by the way, Apollos was very eloquent, very scholarly, and the Corinthians were kind of looking at Apollo saying, well, he's the real deal right there. And then they were looking at Paul going, I don't know. Paul, Paul is saying, look, no matter who, what background, where you've been, what you do, who you think you are, look, the reality is we are one. We are one. We are one body, one mind, one voice, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one Christ, one Savior. One. We are one. And Paul says, regardless of what influence you may have. And this may be balm for your soul this morning, especially if you're young and desiring influence and leadership in the world. What sphere of influence God gives you to whatever degree he gives you, whether it's a platform that reaches billions or whether it's a platform that reaches your son and your daughter or whether it's a platform that reaches one of your parents. And that's it. Paul, Paul says, it's all as nothing, really. We are nothing. We are nothing because God is the one who does everything. Now, three things here that a maturing community really finds healing in as we mature in this idea of exemplifying equality. If we can get this idea of equality, legitimate equality, from our heads down into our hearts, if we can move it from being like, amen, Danny, I totally agree, and then go back out into our world of peer circles and consumerism and individualism and racism and classism without really having it change our hearts. If we can get it down into our hearts, the church community, a non-anxious presence in the midst of a panicked, racist, collective, individualistic, consumeristic culture becomes the premier picture of what humanity can be. Three things that we find healing in. Number one, consumerism. What is consumerism? Consumerism in the church is where you are there in your seat, and your primary question is, what is this church going to do for me? Now, I want to say this to you respectfully, but if you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian for any longer than a year, and you're sitting in this church community, and your primary question, your primary drive right now is, what will this church do for me? That's consumerism. And this is the root. This idea of inequality is the root. The only way you can think that is you think that you don't have an actual assignment from God that would bring you to this church that you're to fulfill. If you believe that you don't have an assignment from God yourself to fulfill in this church to bring glory to God and unity to this community, then you can set back and point fingers at what everybody else is not doing for you. And it is, it is an endemic plague in the Western church. And pastors, some of whom are so gifted organizationally and leadership-wise, placate and actually promulgate. They spread that plague through God's people by bowing the knee to it. God, in his grace, has not given me, he has not given me those gift sets. I don't have that leadership skill. I can't placate your needs. I can't meet them, which is a good thing. That's a good thing. Every time I or a leader in this church fails you, it is God's grace to grow you in your responsibility. 
Every time you see a need in this church and you say that need must be met by someone, (laughs) oh, my dear friend, grab a mirror (laughs) and say, I am the need alleviator. I have been gifted with vision. I see all the needs and I'm going to fix them all. That is where consumerism is healed. If I could have eye contact with every one of you, you have something you're supposed to be doing right now, today in this church. And you're not. Some of us aren't. And the Lord, through Paul, comes and he parents you and he says, you're a teenager. It's time for you to turn a corner here. You can't toddle around like this. It's strange. It's not healthy. Number two, though, individualism is healed in the community of faith as we mature. The human heart is inclined towards a need for significance, and that's a good thing. When we were in the garden, our significance was rooted in God saying, I love you, I adore you, you're beautiful, I praise you, and it was unadulterated. I am significant because I am in the presence of God, and he says all these things about me. Sin cut that off, and now we stranglehold everything around us to get a sense of significance again. And in the church, we strive for it by being seen. If I can be seen as significant and heard as significant and influenced with significance, then I'll finally find peace and I'll find my values. But what this maturing and exemplifying this idea of equality does is it heals that. I don't need significance from my fellow friends and family members in this room. I'm settled. I don't need to be seen as an individual. I need to be seen as just a certain part of this structure that God has put together. I don't need to strive and kick my way through to rise up in leadership in this church. I need to be a servant seen as nothing, doing my assignment, whether it's recognized or not. And I'm not an individual seeking significance in the eyes of others. I am a collective agent in the midst of this community who God is watching. And once again, remember, we're a, we are a restored garden people. If you can mature and hear the Spirit saying, I adore you, I love you, as you're doing the unseen things, as you're giving generously, as you're praying privately, as you're doing these things, you are living in that restored garden. And the Spirit whispers to you these truths. And then finally, this is a one-off here. We're going to end up doing entire series eventually on... Uh, classism and racism within the church. I'm praying that, that our generation is the last generation of mixed churches. I really am. I am praying that my son, when he's 40, will be sitting with me at my deathbed at 80 saying, Dad, did you guys really have black churches? Like, that's so weird. Dad, did you guys have, like, white middle-class churches and Mexican churches and Asian churches and Korean churches? Because the New Testament was like, it's every tribe, tongue, and nation. How did you guys do that? That's what I'm praying for. But classism and racism is very difficult, especially for somebody like me to talk about because I sit in a power position, whether I want to or not, which means my blind spots are bigger than anybody else's. But this is what I know. The gospel brings us to a place where we are confronted with our blind spots. And over the years now, as I've been pondering this and laboring through this and communing and and having tons of conversations with my brothers and sisters that are minorities throughout the church and really throughout the nation and throughout throughout the world, I've come to a place of maturity. My initial reactions were usually immature as a white, upper-middle-class male. 
What do you mean I have privilege that you don't have? I worked really hard to get where I'm at. But as conversations have gone on, I've come to a place where I've, I've had to really humble myself and say, you know what, maybe there's some immaturity here that I need to listen carefully. Now, on the, on the same respect, I would never speak for my African-American or Asian or Mexican brothers and sisters, but they have spoken to me where there's an entrenched, uh, there's an entrenched racism of sorts that is entrenched in an African-American church, that is entrenched in an Asian church. We, by default, seek equality with those that are equal to us in skin color, in economic status, and in educational status. Please pray with me with utmost humility and earnestness. And I'm telling you guys, some of you are going to get really messed with. You're just going to get messed with. I'll give you an example. This is going to unsettle some of you. We were just contacted by a local artist who does alley art all over, all over Burien. Some of it looks like just full-blown, nasty graffiti. Very artistic graffiti, but super graffiti-ish. They want to take our building and that big, long wall in the alley, they want to do a big art piece. And I think for some, when we get into our property, if there's a big, huge art piece and it looks like graffiti on there, this artistic graffiti, actually this one's going to be done by a guy from... Sweden and will rotate that art every four months, I think some upper white middle class families are going to walk in and their initial reaction is going to be, oh my gosh, there's graffiti. All, what kind of church is this? It's unsettling to us, but what I'm asking us to do as a church is be mature. As a church, black, mature. Mexican, mature. White, mature. And be humble enough to say, okay, I've got blind spots here and I need to get uncomfortable enough for the sake of the gospel, for the fact that there are, depending on which study you're reading, uh, 75 to 150 different language groups represented. I'm telling you guys, for you that are older in this room, start praying right now for the next generation of the church. These high school kids right here in front of us, what Ian and the crew are doing, what my son is going to do, that is where tribalism is going to be broken down. That's where classism is going to be broken down. That's where racism is going to be broken down. Because that generation is going to be so hopefully, prayerfully far removed from what we have been in the church for too damn long. Too long. It's damnable, you guys. It's damnable that we would have such racial divides within the church. It's it's wrong. And so the scriptures come to us and they say, through the Spirit, toddlers in this area, I want you to start acting like teenagers and I want, you to, I want you to go get your undergrad degrees in this stuff. Be praying through this. And ask God to bubble up in you blind spots. You'll be shocked. You'll be like, oh my gosh, I did not know that that disgusting, ugly thing was in my heart. It's there. It's there. We need to move on and wrap this up. Paul finally in calling the church to maturity and fullness of humanity and expression of shalom in the community, he exhorted them to their responsibility. Now, as I've already said a number of times in the midst of our time together this morning, every one of you has a responsibility before God. You are going to stand before the creator of the universe and tick off a list that he's going to hold up before you saying, I gave you these personalities, I gave you these gift sets, I gave you these... Uh, abilities, I gave you these positions in life, and you're responsible to respond to him for his glory 
with those things. He, he, he lists it out here. I'll read it for you again in verses 10 through 15. According to the grace of God given to me like a skillful master builder, that was his assignment. I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one that, which is laid, which is Jesus. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work, your responsibility, it's going to be manifest. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire smelling like smoke through all of eternity. How? Let's ask that question this morning as we wrap things up. How do you, how do I, right now, as we've been introspective in the midst of this sermon, maturing and listening to sermons, expecting the Spirit to speak to us, oh God, how do I fulfill my responsibility? For almost 20 years now, I find myself in these moments of meditation panicked. Oh God, please, don't let me waste my life. Please, don't let me waste my life. Oh, God, what a tragedy. And as a senior leader in the communities of faith now for almost 20 years, I have found myself pleading with God, Lord, don't let them waste their lives, please. How do we do it? Number one, we do it grace fully. I had to alliterate all the LYs, and the only way I could get that idea was it's full of grace. God fulfills your responsibility by grace. What do I mean by that? We tend to think that our purpose in life is something that we define and it is something that we do ourselves. It's something that we demand of God. Okay, God, here's my desires, which usually are self-focused, especially if we're very, very immature. Here's my desires. Now I define my will that I want to accomplish for your glory and I demand that you fulfill it. In Jesus' name, bless this mess, right? That's not grace, that's not grace, that's a contract with the creator of the universe who flung the stars out into space beyond and knows every atom in every space and place at all points in time. We come to him with our contract and we say, here's my will, my desire, my demand, now do it in Jesus' name, amen. Grace-led responsibility and its fulfillment is when we stop defining and we stop demanding and we begin discovering. We get still enough and quiet enough. We stop doing enough that we begin to discover that still small voice in the scriptures and then we depend on God. When all of our demands are set aside day by day through sanctification and the disciplines of Christianity, we begin to discover desires that are deeper, desires that are more full and more true and more you and more purposeful in this world. And then we depend on God to guide us in those deeper desires. We depend on God to fulfill his will through us by faith. And we go out and everything that happens in our life then is by grace. Number two, we fulfill God's responsibility in our lives carefully, carefully. Paul says in verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. What, this morning, is your life built upon? Now, cerebrally, in a room like this, 95% of you are going to say, Jesus, I'm a Christian. 
But when we settle down and we get still enough and we really investigate our anxieties and our points of shame, our points of fear, our points of doubt, our points of worry, therein we find what our life is built upon. What you worry you're going to lose, that's what your life is built upon. What you worry you won't gain, that's what your life is built upon. What you war for, what you will fight for to have, that is what your life is built upon. What you fight not to lose at all costs, that's what your life is built upon. What do you weep over? I mean, what just absolutely devastates you, the idea of losing this, that is what your life is built on. What do you weep at the prospect of never having? Precious singles in this room, if I were to say to you, maybe you'll be single till you go to be with Jesus. No! I will war. I will find him. I will find her. No, I can't be single my whole life. <laughs> Don't build your life on the foundation of marriage. Everything we do must be built on Jesus. And the process of maturing is really just coming to grips with the fact that you have this, this, this pile of shoddy bricks that's barely held together. That's called your foundation of what you think is valuable and wise and good. Turning from those bricks and saying, Jesus, I now build my life on you. And God, if you want to add the brick of marriage to my life, I'm going to walk in that joyfully. If you want to add the brick of children and family, great. I'm going to walk in that carefully and, and wonderfully. Um, if you want to add the brick of climbing the corporate ladder, which there's nothing wrong with, but my career, Lord, is it's built upon you. I go to build airplanes and drive buses and put out fires and I go into my classroom to study my algebra and my English and I go into my babysitting jobs. I go now, Lord, with you as the foundation. I do this with you in mind. Paul says, build carefully your life upon only the foundation of Jesus. And then number three, to fulfill your responsibility, you've got to do it intentionally, intentionally. Paul uses this idea of fire coming and testing your works. So gold and silver and precious stones, these will all survive fire. In fact, fire makes those things more precious and more pure. Wood, hay, and stubble are burned up. And there's no end to the scholarly writings on what is gold and silver and precious stones and what is wood and stone and hay. It all boils down to, are you living in light of eternity? What you do in your body, what you say in this world, the actions you take, the action you don't take, the words you don't speak, these things will come before God in a conflagration, another beautiful word for a big fire that will toast everything. I had an epiphany right around 2012. Our church was going through a very difficult time, a lot of pain and a lot of hurt, and I was really not even sure our church was going to survive. I really, really didn't know if our church was going to survive. I didn't know if I was going to survive. And I remember sitting in this place of prayer. I was in southern Idaho, reminiscing about my whole Christian life and coming to this face-to-face -face reality with this thing that I had been, this two-year-old, this toddler that God was trying to mature and realizing so much that I had done in the name of Jesus had been done solely for glory in this world. It was wrong. 
And I feel like God in his grace was showing me, okay, here you are, you're about 35 years old. If I give you another 40 years, I want you to think about every decision you make and every word you speak in light of what it will stand up against in eternity. Are you studying? Are you going to your career? Are you contributing? Are you giving? Are you serving in a way where you will stand before Jesus and therein the fire will come and you will have all around you the works of your life because you intentionally built upon Jesus through his grace. And we've got to wrap this up finally. And this is my favorite of all the points in this entire sermon. If you've been shut down the entire time, this is it. Get this. How do you fulfill your responsibility? You do it selfishly like crazy. What does that mean? What am I talking about? I don't know why we gloss over this in the Western church. We've got this pseudo-humility, and it's totally wrong. Paul says, verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Now we wax pseudo-humble. I only serve God out of the sheer love for him. Look, I'm going to be totally honest. I want as much reward as I come into the kingdom as possible. I have an unadulterated, holy ambition to pile up whatever that reward is in the kingdom. When we go about our responsibilities, grace fully and carefully building them upon Jesus and intentionally thinking about eternity and how am I ordering my budget, how am I ordering my calendar, my priorities, how am I understanding my place in work, my place in singleness, my place in marriage, my place in, in family, my place in empty nesting, my place in retirement, my place in death. When we are doing all of that, God says, and I don't know what that reward is. I know if he can do sunsets like he does sunsets and crash waves on the shores like he does, I know if he can spend billions and trillions of stars out into the universe. I know if he can do brontosauruses and butterflies. Whatever that reward is, is going to be really good, and I want a ton of it. I selfishly want more than you. (laughs) (laughs) Which puts us into a holy competition of sorts. To see who can outdo each other in humility and service. And I'm going to win. Oh, I just lost some reward. (laughs) Let's wrap it up. Closing questions and then the gospel. Ask these questions as we come to communion. What's driving you today? Just let the Spirit commune with your heart. Number two, are you growing in equality? Every person in this room has blind spots. You're either viewing somebody in the church as more than you or less than you, whether that's in duty or assignment or influence, whether that's in class, in economic status, in race. We're all doing that. So grow in equality. Number three, are you fulfilling your responsibility? Are you? You know, when we get up here on Sunday mornings, we're going to do another big push for Taproot Kids because we're really revamping everything. This is not spiritual manipulation. This is pastoring your souls to eternity. And you feel that prick of, man, I should be serving there. And you don't? That's on you. That's, that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. It's unnecessary. Let eternity guide you. Are you fulfilling your responsibility in the small spaces? Are you fulfilling your responsibility? And now, finally, as we wrap this up, what motivates all of that? Oh, man, I feel so guilty. I've got to go do this. No, that's toddling. You're going to fall, and you're going to bump your head on the coffee table corner of legalism, and you're going to become prideful and weird or despondent and depressed. Listen to this. Listen to this. 
the drives that you have, Jesus was driven perfectly by his Father for you, so you're safe. He can parse through all our messed up drives because his motivations were perfect, and he did that as your representative. The Father looks at you and he says, all I see is perfect motivations. What? I am filled with nasty stuff. No, Jesus' motivations were perfect, which means mine are. Jesus died for the whole world equally. He died as much for the penthouse CEO of a Fortune 500 Forbes company as he did for the homeless guy over at Transform Burien. He, he died for us equally, and that motivates us to view each other equally. It puts us on the same playing field. And then finally, the fires that are going to burn up all of our false works, never forget that Jesus took the ultimate fire for you. The fire that would burn you unto eternity and take you from God forever, if you're a Christian and you never do anything for the glory of God, you'll never be burned by that fire. Jesus took it perfectly. You're safe. You're accepted and you're loved. And this is what he says to you guys this morning. He says, look at you. You've got his eyes. You can start to see like he sees. Whoa. I, th- I, think, I think I see his ears on, on you. You can hear the world like he hears. I see his heart in you. You becoming fully you in the midst of a you. Community of yous. A non-anxious presence in the midst of a panic culture. Father, I just thank you this morning for your grace in my personal life that you never leave me in, in, a, in, a, in a stuck place. It seems like I'm always being forced to face myself and, and know myself as loved by you. And so as we come to communion this morning, I'm asking now that in the midst of song, as the scriptures have been taught and the Spirit has been speaking that there would be response in this room as the veil between heaven and earth thins and that each of these Christians in this room would come to experience themselves as you are and they would know themselves more fully as themselves in you. Uh, Father, I feel compelled before we come to the cross this morning to call us to corporate repentance here in our city. Uh, Taproot Church has existed now for almost 10 years in the midst of hundreds of language groups, and I think that we are, we are abysmally failing at penetrating those, those mission fields with the gospel. Lord, where we are blind, where we are not seeing, where we are sitting in our comfort zone and not taking the necessary evangelistic steps because we, we in some way are compromised in our understanding of equality, please forgive us. Oh... God, I personally feel compelled with my family this morning to just thank you again for brokenness. Every person in this room who knows Jesus wants more than anything to to have reward in eternity and, and is hungry for more of you and hungry to eat meat and learn and grow. And so let there be no condemnation in this room, but may the cross, may the cross draw us in our brokenness to, to more faithful fullness. God, may there be a response in this room today. I know you have spoken to every soul. I know that you are speaking even now. You're prompting them towards acts and works and prayers and points of service. You're calling them to commit to maturing in community, maturing in, in their walk with you and not staying stagnant and, and on the periphery. 
Lord, there's healing happening in this church. Souls are being restored from brokenness. Marriages are being healed. Students are being trained, Lord, to be sent into their career paths, prepared for possibly marriage, possibly singleness in this world. We just thank you that we get to do this together as a family, as messed up and jacked up as we are. We are that crazy Southern Ozark family reunion every Sunday. And so, Jesus, as we come to the cross this morning, may the bread be eaten with a sense of joy and warmth and peace and contentment. And Lord, may the blood be spilt upon our souls, washing us utterly clean. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.